You're listening to Muted History, the podcast where we discuss historical and sometimes current true crime incidents across the world and the impact those events have had on our communities. On this show, we inform, educate, and entertain. This week, we'll be discussing the Battle of Blair Mountain. Thousands of rifle-wielding coal miners marched into a densely forested ridge in southern West Virginia in late August 1921. The catalyst of the campaign was the assassination of multiple Union supporters and the tensions that have been developing for years and the suffocating hopelessness of the coal mines. Thousands of men who volunteered to fight the Logan County Sheriff who was being paid around $32,000 a year by the coal corporations, met the army of miners at Blair Mountain. And just for a note, $32,000 back in 1921 uh, has the estimated value of $477,000 today, almost a half a million dollars. The sheriff's troops fought the miners for five days riddling the hillsides with machine gun fire and dumping improvised bombs from aircraft. There are 16 verified killings, but no one knows how many were slain before the U.S. Army arrived to put an end to the battle. So this episode will have a lot of information because I need to set the stage to clearly understand what led to the Battle of Blair Mountain. So let's start with the Union's. So since the establishment of the United Mine Workers Union in 1890, coal miners in Mingo County, West Virginia, and other neighboring areas employed solely non-union workers and enforced employment contracts that specified union membership as a reason for instant termination. So this is already not starting off too good. Um, If you joined a union, you could instantly be fired from this particular coal mine in this Mingo County area in West Virginia. So Mingo County is in the southern western West Virginia. It's the youngest county in West Virginia, and it was created in 1895 and named in honor of the Mingo tribe, which was the native inhabitants of the Ohio Valley region. Now, since most miners in the region resided in company towns, termination also meant eviction. So it wasn't just that you lose your job if you unionize to get better treatment for you and your fellow workers. It also meant that you would not have a home. Now, in 1920, the United Minor Workers' new president, his name was John L. Lewis, He intended to put an end to the area's three-decade-long opposition to unionization. The United Mine Workers' coal strike in 1919, taking place in other coal mines, put further pressure on him to do so in this West Virginia area. There was also another um, person in, in, in the fray. Her name was Mother Jones. So feeling motivated, John Lewis, um, with the help of a woman named Mother Jones, an 80-year-old activist for unionization, 
an 83-year-old activist for unionization and the local president for um, the unions, Frank Keeney, all worked together. And because of their efforts, they were able to sign up over 3,000 Mingo County miners um, to the union only for them to be completely terminated and evicted from their homes. So the coal mining companies employ the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency to evict the families of their former employees. So I, I got to talk about the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency because it's not what you may think you saw on TV back in the uh, in the era of black and white, but it was a private detective detective agency. It was founded in 1890s by William Baldwin as the Baldwin Detective Agency. Now, Thomas Feltz, a lawyer, joined the company in about 1910, and then the name changed to Baldwin Feltz Detectives. Originally, the company provided investigative services to railroads for train robberies and other crimes, which made a lot of sense because the rails were used to to get um, not only money and goods across the country, but uh, it made sense that there was a need to protect that. But by the 1910s, railroad crimes and associated banditry was, had decreased across the United States. Therefore, the Baldwin Feltz began hiring out their detectives as private security forces for mining companies. And as a result, the company is remembered for its violent confrontations with labor unions. Now, both Baldwin and Phelps were also involved in banking. And Baldwin later, later served as the president and member of the board of directors for several banks. Uh, and Phelps was later elected to two terms as a Virginia state senator. Think about these people in these high places. Uh, Baldwin died in about 1936 at 75 years old. Feltz died a, a year later in 1937 uh, at 69 years old. Four months prior to dying, Feltz actually had dissolved the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Uh, by then, strike-breaking work had declined in state and federal legislation outlawing the use of private detectives for the purpose of spying on or harassing workers, along with shifting political opinion, made it uh, made such detectives less useful to manage in labor disputes. So he closed the company. Now. We're going to jump right back into the timeline. So you, you've you had the United Minor Worker folks come in and they got 3,000 people signed up, 3,000 minors. The minors have been terminated and now they need to be evicted. Baldwin Feltz investigators were sent. So about a dozen of those investigators, thugs, private security, whichever terminology you would like to use, uh, including Lee Feltz arrived in Madawin, a city in Mingo County where all the sign-ups sign have happened. They arrived there on May 19th, 1920 and met with Lee's brother, Albert Phelps. Albert and Lee were both brothers of Thomas Phelps, the, the, the private detective agency's co-owner and director. The Baldwin Phelps agents were notorious union busters who used violence against the organization attempting to organize the 
the Asians are also blamed for the 1914 Ludlow massacre, but we'll talk about that at a later episode. Now, Albert had already visited Meadowin and attempted to bribe the mayor, Cable Testerman, with $500 to mount machine guns on town rooftops, but the mayor declined. Uh, $500 in 1914 will be about approximately $7,000 today. And so just so that we're clear, these investigators, Baldwin Feltz, asked to put machine guns on the roofs, rooftops of citizens so that they could intimidate, scare, and basically harm anybody, anyone who signed up to be in a union and get them out of the union area. Now, Albert and Lee, along with 11 others, went out that afternoon for the uh, for Stone Mountain Coal Company site. So remember, in this time, the coal mines owned everything. The first household they evicted was a lady and her three children. The woman's husband was not there. They pushed him out with a pistol and tossed their possessions onto the road in the pouring rain. The miners who witnessed it were enraged and it conveyed the news to the rest of the town. So you got 11, 12 men throwing out a woman. Her husband's not there. So this is 1920. I imagine that most uh, most men handled all of the, uh, I would say, business. Because, you know, at that point, women couldn't even have their own bank accounts. So I think there was an extreme faux pas. First of all, it's a faux pas at any point to get somebody out of their property or wherever they're renting with a gun and throw them in the rain. Like that's, that's already not a good idea. But what I'm saying is that I think there was an additional faux pas that there was a woman that was there that was unprotected and her husband wasn't there and they should have dealt with the man. I think that was a, a greater sentiment for that time frame. Just, just my opinion here. So word got back to the town. That, hey, yo, they just, the uh, the Baldwin Feltz investigators did this, this this shameful act. So the investigators are about to leave town and they approach the chain depot, right? The police chief, his name is Sid Hatfield. And it sounds like a nice old country boy name. But Sid Hatfield and a group of deputized miners met all of the uh the investigators at the train and told them they were under arrest for what they had done. Now, Albert Phelps responded that he did in fact have a warrant for Hatfield's arrest. So uh, the detectives are saying, you can't arrest me. I got a, a warrant for your arrest. Now, when a minor yelled that Sid, Sid had been detained, Testerman, the mayor, raced out to the streets and demanded to see the warrant. So the mayor, again, wanted to see the warrant, and he said that this was a forged document. And as a result, a shootout took place. As a result of the shootout, 10 men were killed, including Mayor Testerman and Albert and Lee Feltz, the brothers to the owner of the detective agency. Um, it was said that Chief Hatfield had actually shot Albert Phelps. 
So ultimately, as I stated, 10 people died that day. And there are varying uh, accounts. And one account said that the uh, detectives had submachine guns with them in their suitcases, which I don't think is too far fetched when you have uh, a head of a, or, you know, a top person in a detective agency asking you to put machine guns on the roofs of houses. So the, sh- the shootout became known as the Madeline Massacre. And it had great symbolic uh, significance for the miners. So the Baldwin Phelps, the supposedly unbeatable detective agency, the security, uh, had been beaten. Chief Sid quickly became a legend and a hero among the miners, as well as a symbol of optimism that the persecution of the coal owners and their hired shooters might be ended. Throughout the summer and into the fall of 1920, the union grew in power in Mingo County, as did the coal operators' resistance. There were sporadic shootouts all around the Tug River Valley, all along the Tug River. And the, the Tug River stretches about 150 miles from close to Virginia's state line, uh, and it borders West Virginia and Kentucky. So the, the stage is set. You have the unions coming in, getting people unionized, the coal miners the um, getting fired and evicted from their spaces. You have the uh, Madeline Massacre where the, uh, the detective agency comes in and um, tries to bribe the mayor to kill its citizens. And then um, a shootout is done. So many skirmishes continue to uh, go back and forth. The coal miner, uh, the owners are not moving. They're not bending. They refuse to allow any of their workers to be unionized. And the thing is, you know, what bothers me is that the coal mine owners, they have comfort and money and they can they can ride this out but the coal miners don't have that you know there was some points where coal mine coal mine companies were paying the people in script and they could only buy food and what they needed from the local stores it was just indentured servitude you lived on their property you could only get enough to pay for stuff that's within the company's store and the company can set whatever price they want for those items it just makes it basically makes you uh and in a denture server uh, and, and african-americans went through that with, as sharecroppers where there just wasn't fair treatment across the board but nonetheless there was a state police captain named Brockus. um and just imagine this is for the state not the county sheriff it's the state captain he raided a tent colony of miners where some that had already been evicted had left the um left the property uh, the homes that the, the coal mine companies provided and were living in tents with their family and so the captain basically said that the miners had opened fire on his troops these unarmed miners on th- on these troops and in retaliation the police shot and detained workers they pulled down Kevin's tents they scattered uh, the things and the of the families um and then both sides decided to like really arm themselves at this point so the miners uh turned to Sid Hatfield the chief that had shot one of the brothers for the detective agency um 
he proceeded to support the opposition by uh transforming one of the jewelry shops in the in the town into a weapon shop now Hadfield had to go to trial for the incident in the Madeline massacre and so the trial for the murder of Albert Fletz Feltz began January the 26th 1921 right so this took place in May of 20 received national attention and it really shed light on the miners concerns. Now Hatfield's fame and legend rose as the trial progressed. He posed for photos and he spoke with reporters fueling the fires of his own fame. In the end, all of the members were acquitted, but the union suffered serious blows because 80% of the mines had resumed operation with imported replacements and miners who had signed contracts stating they would not protest in order to return to work. So all this work and all this death. So you have Hatfield's been uh, acquitted um, and other flare-ups continue throughout the year. Uh, By mid-May of 21, union miners had decided a full-scale assault on non-union mines. Um, and so the quick this fight quickly engulfed the whole Tug River Valley. Um, the fight was called the Three Days Battle and is eventually stopped by a truce flag. Now, the officers, the police decided to determine uh, or, or, or declare martial law. Um, the miners regarded the martial law enforcement as one-sided that only minors were being imprisoned and they were being imprisoned for minor transgressions. And so while it was law and order, but the, um, it just was not fair. And so over time, the miners retaliated. The tensions just continued to build, um, the, the coal mine companies are continuing to make money, uh, but these workers are just uh, are in unsafe conditions. So let's get to August the 1st of 2021. Now, Hatfield had to go to McDowell County to face trial on allegations that he dynamited a coal tipple. Um, a coal tipple basically is something that loads coals into the, car, uh, the railroad cars. Now, he was accompanied by a personal friend, Ed Chambers, and both their spouses were in attendance. Now, unarmed and backed by their spouses, they went to the courtroom, up the front courtroom stairs, when a group of Baldwin Feltz operatives at the top opened fire. Hatfield was killed immediately. Chambers was shot and rolled to the bottom of the steps. Uh, Despite Sally Chambers' protest, one of the agents went down the stairs and shot Chambers in the back of the head again. Cold blood, cold blooded murder in a courtroom in the United States in 1921. They, uh, it is, some of the uh, research stated that uh, these charges were just made up just to get him in this space. So that means you have not only the police but the the judges and everyone contributing to the delinquency or the actually this this heinous criminal activity. Now the bodies of Hatfield and Chambers were returned to Madawin, and the knowledge of the murder spread across the Highlands. 
the miners became enraged by the news of the killing because yeah, he went to, he, he, the Baldwin detectives came to the town. They started a fight. They were killed. The um, chief went to court, was acquitted. And instead of letting it be, they literally murdered him with immunity. Nothing ever happened to Baldwin Feltz, those operatives at all. So, the, of course, the miners were enraged. And so miners around the Little Cold River were among the first to band together and to begin patrolling and securing the region because you can't trust the sheriffs. You can't trust these uh, detective agency folks that keep coming in. I mean, they literally killed them in broad daylight in a, in, in a court and nothing happened. So Sheriff Don Chafin, um, a corrupt sheriff, dispatched Logan County troops to the Little Cold River region where armed miners apprehended and disarmed the officers. So I know I'm throwing a lot of names out here, but now we're thinking about just one Logan County um, where a lot of this took place. So we had, we know that the state captain, police captain is in cahoots with the coal companies. And so is the, um, um, the county sheriff. Again, all corrupt, all crazy. And so sent some folks out there since the miners were trying to, you know, protect themselves. And then the miners took the took the uh, officers or the deputies captive. So the leaders of the West Main Workers District which encompassed most of the West Virginia held a protest at the state house in Charleston on the 7th of August. Um, these uh, commanders were veterans of early minor mining confrontations in the region that included Frank, uh, Frank Keenly and Fred Mooney. Both were from the area, well-read and eloquent. Keeney and Mooney presented governor Ephraim Morgan with a petition outlining the, the miners demands. So just keep this, all this temperature is, all this temperature is brewing because um, the mines are not safe. They try to get a union. They fired everyone. They started shooting people, messing up camps. They uh, literally in cold blood killed someone and nothing happened. So, but Morgan, the governor, flatly refuses the demands. The miners got more agitated and discussed marching into Mingo to rescue the imprisoned miners that were still under martial law. Just a reminder, those that were still in that martial law uh, from mid-May 1921 were still in martial law come August the um, 7th, 1921. They were still being unfairly detained and harassed by the government. So the sentiment is let's go march on Logan County. Let's go get these people and save our, 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 uh, our brother, our, our minor, our minor, minor brothers. That sounded weird, but okay, you got what I'm saying. So uh, while they were there, this is all at the state house. Mother Jones urges minors not to march into Logan in Mingo counties and forcibly established a union. Some people were didn't like what she had to say. Uh, some accused her of losing her cool and other, and she predicted a lethal fight between the um, the minors and the heavily armed Logan County officers. 
So on the 20th of August, armed men began to assemble in Lynn's Creek Mountain near um, Kanawha County, believing Morgan had lied to them once more. That's the the governor. After four days, an estimated 13,000 people assembled and marched towards Logan County. Included in this estimated 15,000 armed miners were 2,000 black miners. Now, miners in uh, surrounding areas um, captured a Chesapeake and Ohio freight train nicknamed Blue Steel Special by the miners to meet up with the troops en route to Bloody Mingo in uh, Boone County. Now, during this time, Keeney and Mooney, two, the president, one is the national president, one the local president, escaped to Ohio, and the miners were headed off by fiery Bill Blizzard, um, some guy. So, uh, a, 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 not some guy, sorry about that, fiery Bill. But fiery Bill was a, a union advocate and a war hero as well. So, meanwhile, the anti-union sheriff uh, was erecting barriers on Blair Mountain the Logan County Co-Operators Association provided financial banking, allowing him to build the nation's biggest private army of about 2,000 men. So on the morning of August 25th, the first of the gunfire began, and Eli Kemp, a black miner, was the first to die in the battle at Blair Mountain. So I'm going to give you a little, a little black history break. Of course, the first person to die in the Battle of Blair Mountain was Eli Kemp, an African-American uh, miner. Black miners like Eli Kemp were often degraded by white miners. Uh, white workers and employees believed that blacks were inferior. Now, many of the unskilled jobs like coal loaders and mule handlers and even coke oven workers were fill, filled by, uh, by blacks. And by the way, a coke oven is a chamber of brick or other heat-resistant material in which coal is heated to separate the coal gas from the coal water and the tar. So the coal gas and the water fuse together with carbon, and the remaining uh, ash form a hard residue commonly known as coke. Not the coke you snort or the drink, but coke is primarily used in steel production. Uh, in 1921 report from the West Virginia Bureau of Negro Welfare and Statistics, only 231 of the almost 6,500 black employees in the industry worked higher paying skilled jobs and only seven were foremen. About 75% of all black miners became coal loaders. Now, blacks preferred coal loading because it allowed them to simply leave the mine when they had loaded enough coal for the day. Now, coal loading also offered less direct supervision. Black miners usually did not see a foreman more than once during an entire shift. This was an important consideration for blacks who came to the mines to escape the constant scrutiny of the white, of, of the white people in the Jim Crow South. Now, the complete control and autonomy that coal companies had over the miners' lives worsened the condition for working-class blacks. Black workers in northern cities like Detroit or Chicago were uh, forced into segregating neighborhoods by racist redlining and violence, where miners um, 
All miners of all race and creed in, in Southern West Virginia were housed at the pleasure of the company, ensuring that black miners were placed in the oldest and least maintained dwellings within a coal camp. And while the coal miners were unpleasant to everyone, it's really important to know that the stakes were definitely higher as the consequences were more severe. While explaining that black workers could not count on interracial class solidarity since white workers saw jobs in the mines as theirs. Although black miners were willing to put their lives on the line, they did not have any amount of equity amongst those that did the same work as them. So jumping out of my black history moment, the majority of the miners was still about 15 miles away from the intersection where you get to Blair Mountain. And then President Warren G. Harding threatened to send federal soldiers and an army B-1 bombers the next day. The miners were persuaded to return home after a lengthy discussion. Um, within hours of the discussion, rumors circulated that Chapton's men had shot Union sympathizers in Sharples, a town just north of Blair Mountain, and the families had been caught up in the crossfire. So the miners returned, with the majority of them traveling in stolen or seized trains. And by August of 1929, the battle had come to a head. Um, Chafin soldiers had outnumbered, were outnumbered, but they possessed higher positions and superior weapons. Private planes were recruited to dump improvised explosives on the miners. Poison gas and explosive explosive bombs from World War One were dropped in a number of areas around the town of Jeffrey, Sharples, and Blair. Keep in mind, these are families. There's the coal miners and their families, women and children. And the United States government, the West Virginian government allowed bombs to be dropped on their citizens. At least one of the bombs did not detonate and was collected by the miners. It was utilized effectively as evidence for the def their defense during treason and murder trials and months later. Army bombers from Maryland were also utilized for aerial surveillance on instructions by um, General Billy Mitchell, an actual general in the United States Army. Now, on his return journey, one Martin bomber crashed, killing all three crew members. So Morgan uh, selected Colonel Ewing's Eubank of the West Virginia National Guard to head the government and volunteer soldiers battling the miners on August the 30th. Now, sporadic gun engagements raged for a week and the miners nearly breaking through to Logan and their intended destination, the non-unionized counties of Logan and Mingo to the south. There were up to 30 dead on Chafin's side and 50 to 100 on the Union minor side with hundreds more maimed or wounded. Chafin's forces included 90 men from Bluefield, 40 from Huntington, and approximately 120 from West Virginia State Police. Three of Chafin's soldiers were slain, including two volunteers and a deputy sheriff, and one minor was murdered. So by September 2nd, federal soldiers had arrived. The miners, many of whom were veterans, refused to open fire on U.S. forces. Now, Bill Blizzard, 
uh, American Union organizer and commander of the Miners Army announced that the miners will begin returning home the next day. Now, Bill Blizzard was an organizer of the Army Armed March and played a key role in supplying guns and ammunition and supplies to the Army. Now, Mother Jones, a well-known advocate, uh, tried to halt the miners before they entered Logan County. She claimed she had a letter from President Warren G. Hardy that supported many of the rights of the miners they were fighting for. The letter turned out to be fake and the word quickly spread. Mother Jones left West Virginia shortly after the presentation of her false letter. The miners wore red bandanas around their necks to distinguish friend from foe and contribute to the term redneck. The miners reached Logan County at Blair Mountain and Crook Creek Gap, where Chafin had entrenched 2,000 non-union supporters and volunteers. Miners who feared arrest and gun confiscated, uh, confiscation devised ingenious ways to conceal rifles and pistols in the forest before fleeing Logan County. Some were discovered after, afterwards, along with several expended and live cartridges, which assisted archaeologists in reconstructing the battle's path. Now, following the conflict, 985 uh, miners were charged with murder, murder conspiracy, uh, accessory to murder, and treason against the state of West Virginia. Others were imprisoned for years despite being cleared of the uh, by favorable jury. So even after they went to trial and they were cleared, some people were still in prison and not allowed to let go. The unexploded bomb was presented as proof that the government's and corporations violence during Blizzard's trial and he was acquitted. While Black employment in the southern coal fields remained steady until the 1930s. The Great Depression brought disaster to the industry. Despite better working conditions and after unionization, black miners were still the first to be laid off during declines and in coal production. By the time the economy recovered, me mechanization took hold in the mines and many of the jobs lost in the Depression never came back, especially for workers of color. While blacks made up at least a fifth of West Virginia's coal miners since 1900. By 1940, the percentage had fallen to well below 20% for the first time and fell precipitously in the subsequent decades. Today, less than 3% of coal miners in West Virginia are people of color. So over the next several years, the UMW, the United uh, Mine Workers membership fell more than 50,000 miners to about 10,000 miners. And it wasn't until 1935, following the Great Depression and the start of the New Deal under President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that the UMW completely formed uh, in the southern West Virginia. This union setback had far-reaching consequences as a whole. Union mining was no longer financially viable after World War I as the coal economy began to decline. In recent years, the United States has begun talking about more painful and tragic incidents from its past, like the Tulsa Race Massacre and the Battle of Blair Mountain. This has led to a whole new demographic being exposed to this part of America's history. Just a few takeaways. The battle shed light on the incredibly horrific working conditions in the mines of West Virginia. 
It also led unions to rethink their political strategy to better represent themselves. Um, The Battle of Blair Mountain remains America's largest worker uprising to this day. The happenings are still significant over 100 years later. The centennial has brought a lot of attention on the battle, and people are beginning to question why this part of American history is not taught in schools. This revolution, more than anything, was an attempt to challenge the industrial power structure in the United States, with miners attempting to win individual rights denied under the mine guard system. And that wraps up this episode. You know, um, if you hadn't heard of the Battle of Blair Mountain before, I hope this gives you a little bit of insight of some of the history that we don't necessarily see or know uh, and why this podcast is called Muted History. So thank you for listening and I'll catch you next week. Hey, this is a free podcast. And one of the easiest and simplest ways for you to support us is by rating and reviewing the show. So do it now before you forget. If there's a true crime incident you want us to cover, or if you have a question, message us at contact at mutedhistory.com. That's contact at M-U-T-E-D-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y.com. Tell your people about the podcast. Your recommendation helps our show grow.